0: Welcome to Heroin City, the podcast that champions women in history and puts them back into the history books. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we are talking about Anne Boleyn's women, the women that influenced her, the women that were around her in her formative years as well as the women that looked after her memory after she died. With us in Heroin City today, we have Kate McCaffrey. an historian and assistant creator at Anne Boleyn's childhood home of Heber Castle in Kent. She's the author of two books and her groundbreaking MA research into Anne Boleyn's book of hours garnered international press attention and scholarly praise. She's appeared in several television shows, including Becoming Anne Boleyn and Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon, Brilliant Rivals on History Hit, and Songs of Praise on the BBC. Recently at Hever, she has co created the Catherine and Anne Queen's Rivals Mothers exhibition, running this year, 2023, until November. We caught up with Kate at the end of last year when the Becoming Anne exhibition was still happening at Hever Castle. Welcome, Kate, to Heroin City. Thank you very much for being here and sparing the time to come and talk to us. Thank you for having me. I'm
1: thrilled to be a guest. It's very exciting.
0: So Heroin City is all about the interconnectedness of women in history, but also shining a light on anything that we think has been overlooked or hidden from view and making sure that people know about it. And I think that you are somewhat of an expert at that because you've been doing some great detective work yourself. So would you kick us off by telling us what you've been up to that's connected to Anne
1: Boleyn. Yes, absolutely. I have been studying in particular one of her Books of Hours, so one of her prayer books. Um, They were very popular prayer books at the time, Books of Hours, and this is a book that we know that Anne owned because she wrote in it. She wrote a signed inscription remember me when you do pray that hope doth lead from day to day. But that was previously thought to be the only inscription within the book. This book has never really received close study. It sort of surprises me how much it's been overlooked really in scholarship. And I had the wonderful opportunity to look through it very closely And I uncovered four new inscriptions within the book that we didn't realise were there before. They were written in the 16th century, but then they've later been erased, probably at the start of the 20th century. So by uncovering these new inscriptions, I found the authors of those inscriptions. And what's unravelled from that is this really wonderful network of predominantly women who kept Anne's Book of Hours safe after her disgrace, her downfall, her execution. In the aftermath of that, Henry VIII tried to really erase Anne from history, a sort of systematic erasure of her. So it would have been dangerous to own anything that bore her name or her image. So the women who did keep this book safe and who wrote in the book after Anne, they weren't really a part of a sort of brave community. I think it really is an act of solidarity, really, that they've kept this book safe and added to it in their own way. It really makes this beautiful community so there's lots of amazing individual stories that have spiralled out from this one book.
0: Are you continuing to study those stories then, or is that maybe the next thing you're going to do?
1: Yeah, I'm still continuing with my work with this book. Honestly, it continues to astound me how much I find as I still keep working with it. But yeah, the individual characters, individual women who were involved, sadly, not huge amounts is known about them. The local gentry woman around Kent, close to Hever, records aren't hugely forthcoming but I am continuing my work with them and yeah some amazing stories are out there and unravelling as I go
0: you mentioned there it's hard to find sources but what are the sources other than the book how did you piece it all together
1: so the the inscriptions obviously led my way I used ultraviolet light and sort of different photo editing software to bring the words forth on the page and then spent months trying to use my paleography skills to unravel what they actually said and once I had the names that was the most important thing I was looking for because, obviously, then once you've got a family name, you can piece together provenance and piece together family trees. So, family trees also formed a bulk of my research. And what's brilliant is that all these names are linked, to all the women who owned the book after Anne are linked by kin. So there's insight into gentry networks in Kent through marital alliances and familial alliances. So local records offices are really helpful but again still a lot is tantalisingly close but not quite there.
0: Being at Hever as well, being there and surrounded by all of this, obviously that inspired you. Which came first? Were you looking at the book subsequently after working at Hever or vice versa? So I actually started
1: working at Hever when I was 16. So it's been like a big part of my life really and I worked there in between university in between degrees when I went to do my master's here in Canterbury I then was writing an essay actually I thought I'll just see if I can reach out to HEVA. obviously I know them I know they're very protective and rightly so over their books of hours but their wonderful head curator Alison Palmer she let me get my hands on the books for what I thought was going to be an essay it evolved obviously into my thesis I started working there then I came back to study and then after I studied I came back to work again.
0: It's reverberating through history this solidarity and around Hever, there was definitely like you say a network that existed that you're uncovering but also now i've spent some time at heaver i was one of the scarers at their halloween scarer yes. um, experience i went because i wanted to be around Hever and never been before and i thought oh that'll be fun and actually i was positioned in the Berlin bedroom so i, I felt like i would got i was in the center of the house <laughs> right next to the book of hours so yeah. yeah exactly and i did talk to the ghosts all the time it, when we were stood there in the dark in character one yes. of the things that i did come away with from that experience is that there is a sense of community around Eva and you yeah. must be smack bang centre in the middle of that which is great yeah it's
1: huge it's a really to me it's like a second family to be honest the, the people there lots of them have worked there for years and years and years you know it's a kind of place that you're always drawn back to I think even if you go away and do other things there's something magnetic about the place still
0: some would say there's got to be ley lines involved somewhere but <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> but maybe not go down that route but it sounds like it's been happening for generations so that's kind of nice <laughs> to keep that going we should probably frame all of this in the revisionist work that historians are doing on Anne and her life and obviously you've been a huge part of that and Dr Emerson is also a big part of that with your latest exhibition so perhaps you want to tell us about the context of that. Absolutely
1: our current exhibition um, that runs until November it's called Becoming Anne, Connections Culture Court, and we're using the 500th anniversary earlier this year. It was on the 4th of March of Anne's debut at the English Court in the Chateau Ver pageant. It's her first recorded appearance at the English Court 500 years ago this year. So we thought we'd use that anniversary to kind of look at her life up until that point. So looking at her youth, her upbringing, her education, her time spent in Europe, all kinds of aspects of her life that we perhaps don't really spend as much time learning about. I think we all know how her tragic story ends, but it's equally important and equally fascinating, I think, really how she began, how her rise began. So that's really what we're trying to capture in the exhibition.
0: And it's kind of the antidote to the two-dimensional and that we've seen on TV in different forms or or in films and, and even in books and obviously propaganda at the time. So it's really nice to delve into what the woman might have been like with everything around and in context of her time and who she was influenced by and influenced by the sounds of it when it comes to the women that you've uncovered to connect to the book so I think it's a really good book that goes in tandem with a book by Sarah Griswood that you actually cite in it which is yes. Game of Queens which is another one that delves into that aspect of this whole it wasn't just England that was going through this moment of female rule was it it was also happening in Europe so it's nice to connect the dots a little bit and Anne being one of those very important people that actually was part of a Big selection of the most important ones. So let's dive into that then. Let's start with her mother and her sister because we know quite Mm -hmm. a lot about Thomas Boleyn. And if anyone has been doing their Anne Boleyn research, they'll probably know about Thomas Boleyn and his position at court and the fact that his standing was what led her to be able to get these amazing positions in European courts. There's an extant letter that obviously points to that and we can talk a little bit about that. And we know about George, her brother, and we know that she was very close to him. We also know that that was part of the later accusations. Put that to one side because we're not going to talk about that chapter. What we're going to talk about is what we know of Anne Prior to all of that, talk to me about her mother and sister. How close were they? And do we know much about Elizabeth
1: Boleyn, her mum? So they're both fascinating women. I mean, I think Anne was surrounded by... Fascinating woman when she was growing up. Again, sadly, we don't have huge amounts of records that survive that tell us much about Anne's mother or her sister, particularly her sister Mary Elizabeth Boleyn. She was born a Howard, so she was part of the incredible family and ancestry of the Duke of Norfolk. So I'm sure that Anne was proud to have that kind of illustrious ancestry, and we know that she used their kind of symbols um, going forward on that vein. Also, her grandmother um, Thomas Boleyn's mother, uh, Lady Margaret. Butler, We know that Anne was very close to her and really held her ancestry, again a very strong kind of Irish ancestry and nobility very close and she uses the falcon of the butler family in her symbolism and her heraldry going forward but elizabeth we know would have obviously been involved in anne's early education so you know before anne goes to europe and joins all these illustrious courts she would have been educated by elizabeth by her mother she would have been very heavily involved in her children's education probably at heaver we also know that elizabeth was a very well respected member of catherine of aragon's household she was a lady waiting to catherine of aragon since catherine of aragon's coronation so she was not only a mother who ran her private estates you know the growing estates of the Berlin family but she was also a courtier. She was in the politics of court, and I'm sure that as a very early example for Anne to kind of observe and learn from, Elizabeth could have been a much better example for for Anne to learn the starts of political intrigue, um, female involvement in politics, but also in the kind of domestic sphere of running households. We know later um, that when Anne is in the Tower, we know that she says that she's worried that her mother is going to die of grief um, when, you know, her and her brother are in prison. So that really obviously suggests a very close relationship as well. and we know that Elizabeth dies two years later, two years after Anne and George. so I'm sure heartbreak was a part of that. In terms of Mary, there's yeah tantalizingly little. I think what we do know is often clouded by kind of popular depictions, probably namely things like the Berlin girl. We know later in their life the relationship was fractious. While they were at court, Mary married her second husband, William Stafford, she married him in 1534 without familial or monarchical consent. So we know that she is then banished from court for a time and that obviously is a bit of a rupture in the family. Relationships both with Anne, George and Thomas. We know later that Thomas does reconcile with his daughter because he leaves her lands in his will when he dies in 1539. Perhaps it's likely that Anne and Mary reconciled as well. I mean, you can only imagine what would go through a sister's head when she sees both her brother and her sister being arrested and charged and executed on such horrendous, horrendous charges. I think certainly in their youth, we can speculate that they were close. We know, like you said, that Anne and George were thick as thieves. There's no reason for us not to believe that Mary also wasn't a part of that, you know, as the kind of three surviving berlin children especially in their youth mary was educated alongside anne we also know she was in france while anne was in france for a short period so they would have been around each other very much they would have been close i'm sure as children and then obviously throughout their lives I'd like to think at least that there was a kind of reconciliation before the end
0: yeah you would think that wouldn't you when there's such tragedy as well you'd think that the father and daughter would come together at the end Mary had family and obviously there's the family line there as well so there's children involved there too I got goosebumps when you mentioned about the mum dying because I only found that out recently Mm -hmm. And I did think, oh, wow, well, yeah, that makes absolute sense. And bring it up now because you've mentioned it. Being in the Berlin bedroom and seeing Henry and all the wives depicted in the bedroom really irked me. I'm just like, why <laughs> yeah. are you doing that in their, their place that would have been their sanctuary? I understand that people come to Hiva are going to want to see Henry in some way and, and depicted. But, you know, talk to us about that because it would be lovely to move him out of that bedroom
1: <laughs> for it me. It would be. It would be. And actually we have... Um, when you come back to the exhibit, we have moved some of them around and we, we do have plans to move things going forward. Obviously, we've got new exhibits coming each year now and there's also going to be a lot of change. I can't say too much, but a lot of change in the castle over the coming two or three years. So that's a sort of stay tuned, but we're on it.
0: <laughs> good. I would expect so with you and Erwin. So that's good because I do think that that's the old way of doing things. And I, and I think that with all this amazing new work that's out there and in, in the public domain, I think there's no excuse use now, is there? People know, actually they know the story, they also understand where he is in this picture and to have him there in such a a way when you're wanting to step into that, what probably was a very happy childhood Absolutely, and it just doesn't fit right for me that's good news so that's lovely to hear about elizabeth i do think there's more to find out about her isn't there mm-hmm. so so that would be interesting your book illustrates and was the culmination of years and years and years of that family kind of doing different interesting things that kept putting them in the public eye and it's fascinating trajectory of the it, family. Is. it really is what we have then is, is these women born into a time when women were educated and it was a little bit of a dawning of a different kind of way of doing things when it came to women especially, obviously, of the nobility. So how individual was Anne and Mary's education?
1: Let's put that into context as well. Yeah, it was very special at the time, still. It really wasn't until the 1530s that it became kind of fashionable for girls of Mary and Anne's station to be educated to the standard that they were. And we know Thomas Boleyn, he was a humanist, um, similar views to many sort of rising people at the time, rising ideas of educating women to a similar if not the same standard as they would educate their sons and so we know uh, that Anne and George particularly shared a lot of educational pursuits in common you know we know they loved languages religious reform art poetry music those kinds of things again we don't have the quite the same records for Mary but we can absolutely assume that she was you know involved in that same education it would, would make absolute sense so yeah it really was a unique education and I think particularly for Anne, who then spent seven years on the continent in Europe, that made her stand out even more. That really was not typical of any form of nobility. You know, when she returns to the English court, she stands out, and I think she consciously stands out from her contemporaries, um, her fellow Englishwomen, you know, she would absolutely have been one of the most intelligent and educated women there. And she uses that to her advantage.
0: I love that. Even in that letter to her father, it's there that she wants to do well. And that's wonderful. And it's nice to see that the women of the family were the ones that also upheld what Thomas had been building and very much were allowed to shine in that arena. And I think that that's really important because this is something that Thomas had been doing for a long time. He'd been shining. He'd been working yeah. hard. And she was taking that torch to these illustrious courts, like you say. And I just think that that's, I mean, there must be a lot of pressure on her, but it seems to be that she was of the character that could handle it, even in her team.
1: I think, yeah, I think she thrived on it. You know, I think definitely when she goes abroad to Margaret Foster's court for the first time, I think she would have felt pressure, maybe a slight burden on her. She knows what Thomas has gone through to get her this position. It's such a prestigious position. But like you say, that letter is such a beautiful letter. We can see so much from it, you know, as Anne writing to Thomas to update him on her progress, um, her education with Margaret. What I love about the letter, I mean, aside from the fact that the spelling is atrocious and she references <laughs> that and she says i'm trying my best but is the fact that the letter itself which actually dr laura Mackay has done some amazing work into with her reappraisal of the Berlin men but she noticed that the letter has been folded so many times that it really seems as if thomas you know was proudly reading that letter he was opening it and reading it being proud of his daughter's progress and then keeping it safe the fact that it survives again shows that he kept it very safe so that's a little exactly. lovely anecdote i think
0: yeah, I think it's really special. So she's off. At what age did she go to serve Marguerite of Austria? Tell us about that time.
1: Yeah, so I mean, obviously, depending on when you think Anne was born, there's a still a kind of raging debate on what year she was born. Going with most agreed upon date to be 1501, she was, you know, around 12 when she goes to the court of Margaret of Austria. So she's only just sort of preteen really.
0: Everything ahead of her, excited, I'm sure. Do you think this would have been the first time she'd have left
1: England? Yeah, the first time she left England and the longest trip she ever took was to Court of Margaret of Austria. So it really, you can only imagine the impression on a young 12-year-old girl going abroad with all of this expectation behind her, how exciting that was.
0: So she's there, and she ingratiates herself quite quickly, doesn't she? shes That's quite interesting as well. So straight away she becomes an asset, and we know this because
1: of the letter that was sent back to Thomas, is that right? Yes, so we, we have a letter that actually Margaret of Austria sent to Thomas, a glowing report, really, of Anne. Anne's only just arrived at the court, but she already says to Thomas, she says, I find her so bright and pleasant for her young age that I am more beholden to you for sending her to me than you are to me. So she's thrilled to have Anne as part of her court, which says so much because at Margaret of Austria's court, it's, it's all the royal nieces and nephews and sons and daughters of Europe. She really has one of the most illustrious and admired courts. So for Anne... You know, a 12-year-old girl from a rising family. Of course, it's a rising family, the Berlin's, but, you know, still not one anywhere near the kind of levels of the children she's being educated alongside. For her to arrive and make such an impression... I think it really is a dazzling debut.
0: Mm, I think that makes sense, doesn't it? Because that's the whole point, is that she knew that there was a lot of pressure on her. But at the same time, she'd had these formative years at Hever, moving her into this world and actually preparing her well, it sounds like. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about a little bit about Margaret Vostria and who she mm. was and, and where she fits in all of this.
1: So Margaret Vostria is a fascinating woman from the time she was the daughter of Maximilian I, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. She was the regent of the Low Countries, really for Anne to enter her household and be in her service. This is Anne's first real experience of a woman wielding political authority. Margaret is ruling the Low Countries, so this is a huge example for Anne to learn from, let alone the people that she's surrounded by. At Margaret's court, the other kind of royal families, really, of Europe, who have sent their children here to this kind of most supreme boarding school, really, about European children. And the work that Anne would have been surrounded by at Margaret's court is also something I think we see hugely influences her in her later life. And it continues through her time in France as well. But she here is exposed, I think, to the first time to the heights of culture, art, literature, music, poetry. She's really suddenly sees all of this for the first time at Margaret of Austria's court. And I think, yeah, she thrives in this kind of environment. I think it absolutely is a really formative time for her.
0: And female rule done without... Well, I'm sure there was contention, but, you know, it was a successful female. Yeah,
1: it absolutely yeah. was.
0: You have mentioned a little bit about the arts there. I know that there was an extensive
1: library, is that right, Margaret of Austria had? Yeah, she had a really extensive library. I think, again, we know in later life, Anne has a great love for literature, religious literature. She collects books, she imports books uh, during her time as queen. So I think this would be her first real exposure to the heights of beautifully bound, beautifully written, opulently decorated books that again continues in her time in France. But it was also the ideas that she was exposed to here, I think. You know, the works, for example, of Christine de Pizan, who was a very famous medieval court writer. She's obviously a female writer. um, She's a female scholar. And Margaret, we know, owns several of de Pizan's works, including two copies of maybe one of her most famous works, which was the book of the city of ladies. And it was this book, it actually celebrated the education of women, promoted uh, women's desire to learn, questioned the male idea that women should not be educated. And it drew on also historic examples of female authority to kind of lay that in a historic grounding. Um, It was originally published in 1405, the city of ladies. So these are ideas that have been around, you know, for over 100 years at this point. But I feel like in Anne's time, these are the ideas in the early 16th century that are actually starting to take a bit of root. And we're actually starting to see them throughout Europe.
0: Yeah, and the fact that those books are present in in the court. Christina Pizan, it's brilliant that we're able to talk about her now because I don't know if anyone's noticed the connection to Heroin City and the City of Ladies, but it's there. It's glaringly (laughs) obvious. It wasn't so long ago that I really started to find out about Christina Pizan, and it was actually in context Mm -hmm. of Anne Boleyn. I was reading Mm -hmm. something where it said, and probably read City Ladies, amongst other stuff. And I just thought, who's this woman? As I do, whenever I hear a name who's done something interesting, I start to then delve. And it made me think about the way women have influenced each other throughout time. And that is what Christine's talking about. That's what she's trying to illustrate, is that these women have existed before and they'll exist again. And then it made me think of Virginia Woolf. A Room of One's Own, and we're talking about centuries Mm -hmm. after, but she's saying the same thing. And then I thought, why are we still having to say this? (laughs) But then there's still a lot of work to be done whereby we need to uncover these women in history so that we understand that these women have come before and we can do it again. And you're doing that, that's your work. It's fascinating to me that... We think everything's new and it's not. What Anne was doing mm-hmm. there was uncovering all of these things for herself and being inspired by them and then putting them into play in her life.
1: And that's awesome. what we're still doing. Exactly. It, it's themes throughout history. It trickles down.
0: It's a huge motivation behind what I'm doing here. And so much so that I decided to call it Harriman City. And I love the um, idea that we are building the city around us with the bricks of the women that have gone before. And that's basically, I'm totally lifted that from Christine de Pizan. So thank <laughs> no you, Christine. And thank you for all of those streams from woman to woman throughout time, because I think it's really important. But well, she was saying
1: that, by the way.
0: Yes, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. So, you know, you get it because you've been inspired by these moments where you've gone, ah, and everything just makes sense and it connects. Yeah. And I think that that's what we're talking about here. You feel the hands reaching out through history, don't you?
1: Yes.
0: Christine de Pizan, different ideas that would have been a young teenage woman, he is starting to shape things that were beyond perhaps what was happening in Heva, she's now seeing there's a big outside world, but also more than that, she's seeing it in play, like she's discussing it, I'm sure. And she's mm-hmm. seeing how that can take the form of a woman with authority and how that can then be demonstrated, which is really important, I think, because you can have these ideas and be closed away in a room, or you can see how it can be demonstrated on the world stage. And that's what she was witnessing. Right.
1: Absolutely. I think, yeah, she comes at this perfect time again where these ideas have been around for a while. But really, this is where we're starting to see a few women across Europe, you know, putting them into practice. And Anne is lucky enough to be in the service of, or be around, be in the presence of several of those. In fact, probably the most important kind of key female players in Europe at this time. Anne is around in her youth and her upbringing. And that absolutely, you know, sets her up for the woman that she becomes and the queen that she becomes later on.
0: And we should probably talk about religion here because obviously it's a huge part of their belief structure and their values. So although we are talking about scholarly women and religion is a, a huge part of the theology mm-hmm.
1: and, and what they are practising and reading about. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So I think there's definitely, again, yeah, we can say female scholars, and but it's very different to how you and I are today. Um, I think they, you know, there were still very much limits on what was appropriate for them to be learning and reading, and, and while this scope was widening, and while Anne was exposed to a wider variety of materials in Europe than she would have been if she'd just perhaps stayed learning at home or in a non-humanist household like the one she grew up in, there was still limits. And I think that's things why these books of ours, for example, you know, their religious literature, traditional religious literature, Books of Ours in particular seem to have a special relationship with women. We have many surviving examples today of women writing in Books of Ours specifically. And I think that is because it was an appropriate outlet for female literacy and female religious engagement. So, yeah, it it wasn't, you know, too wacky and wild, but there still were these developing ideas. but, But it was still very based in a kind of traditional narrative of what women could engage with.
0: But at the same time, there were some radical ideas coming through Mm -hmm. Europe, and obviously we weren't quite there yet, but they were making their way to England and the British Isles. So at that point... And is aware of all of that at court and maybe the rumblings of Lutheranism and and Calvinism and all those different things that started to grow Mm.
1: from Europe. Definitely. I think, yeah, and particularly, you know, when she moves to France um, and is around probably the most famous female religious reformist of the time, Marguerite d'Angoulême. She was a powerful patron for religious reform and It's highly likely that Anne was in her presence and involved in her stream of ideas, because It does seem a very sudden coincidence, you know, that Anne's in France exposed to Marguerite's patronage of these religious reformers. And then she very much holds that close with her as she goes back to England. You know, even specific works that she would have perhaps seen around Marguerite or specific French theologians, for example, Jacques Lefebvre de Tarcle. He uh, was sponsored by Marguerite d'Angoulême and then later has his works imported to England. So there are all these kinds of connections, I think. I think her time in France is really when those kind of religious ideas start to to bubble to the surface.
0: Okay, so she's in Michelin at the minute and then she goes over to France. I was surprised to see that that wasn't for very long. She was pulled away from Margaret of Austria quite quickly, wasn't she?
1: Yeah, surprisingly so. She was only really there, we think, for around a year. And then it was, you know, the next seven years she spent in France. We don't know exactly when she arrived in France. There's sort of differing ideas because we have a mistress, Berlin, arriving in France, but we also know that Anne's sister, Mary, was in France at the time, so it sort of could be either of them. We think probably that Anne actually didn't arrive in France until after the wedding of Henry VIII's sister, Mary, with, with King Louis of France. This was the premise of Anne going to France. She was going to be in the train of Henry VIII's sister. Obviously, she's an, an English princess but she's marrying a French king so she needs attendants who are English women but who speak French and Anne at that point is a perfect candidate because she's been learning French both at Hever and then now in the Court of Margaret of Austria so it makes absolute sense that she would go over to France for that occasion but what's interesting is that you know that marriage between Mary and Louis only lasts three months he's very old she's very young he dies after three months into their marriage and she goes back to England having married without consent, one of her brother's best friends. But that's another story. Another one that Um, I would love to delve into, but let's (laughs) do another another podcast. And we think around that time that Mary Boleyn, Anne's sister, also returns back to England, as did most of Mary's attendants. But we know that Anne stays and she joins the household of Queen Claude of France who is the new Queen of France. She's married to Louis' son, Francis, and that's where Anne remains for the next seven years. So although she comes to France, and seems unusual that she has chosen to stay. But
0: then she's still young. She perhaps felt like her time wasn't done yet. You know, she's enjoying herself by the sound of it. She is.
1: And I think, yeah, she's around the same age as Queen Claude. And it's possible that while she was there... In Mary's train, you know, they they became close and that Queen Claude asked for Anne to stay around. Yeah, and then Anne learns from her. It's another queen to learn from. It's the first queen she's in service to. And she learns an awful lot, I think, from Claude and Louise of Savoy and Marguerite d'Angoulême, maybe the three most important women in France in the early 16th century. Queen Claude, I think she learns a lot probably less about the kind of political authority from Queen Claude. Claude was very young, she was sort of very shy and is often referred to as kind of constantly pregnant. She often wasn't in the centre of French court, she retired to households to give birth and to recover. But from her she was, I think Anne would have learned a lot about arts, culture, literature. I think this is really where we see Claude being a famed patroness of the arts, even if she wasn't a famed wielder of authority, she was a famed patroness of the arts. And There are some beautiful links between Anne's experiences in Queen Claude's household and items that we know still survive today and that Anne had later in her life, including my favourite book of hours from Hever, which I've worked, obviously done all my research on, and uh, this features a very specific style of decoration. It's a very specific Renaissance style of borders, and that is something that Anne first saw, very likely, in a book of hours that was commissioned for Queen Claude while she was still in France, and Anne takes that decoration. Obviously, having liked it and has it, you know, decorated in books of hers in the future. So, I think in terms of art and patronage and literature, Queen Claude definitely was a real influence on Anne, or at least her court was, what the ideas that were going around in her court.
0: mention now Marguerite of Angoulême and the fact that she was right in the centre of a new way of thinking when it comes to religion, but Louise of Savoy is an interesting character, and she? She's a little older than, than the others.
1: Yeah, she is. So she's actually the mother of um, Francis I. So she is Claude's mother-in-law. So she's the mother of the king. She acts as his regent at several points throughout his rule. When he's off at war, she will reign. And she does that very successfully. And she also is seen, I think, very much as the power behind the throne. She has a kind of formidable reputation. You don't cross Louise, I think. If you want to get to the king, you go through Louise. So... Very much, I think this is where Anne sees the kind of wielding of female political authority and leadership, both in terms of being regent, but also in terms of the influence a woman can have on the king, you know, behind the throne, which is what we see Anne doing when she comes back to England, both before marrying Henry and and after. I think that's a really, really valuable figure for Anne to learn from. And one that I think Louise really at this point is exercising agency and authority in one of the only ways that was available for women mm. and that's through the king. But you know, she is she's almost the puppeteer behind Francis at this point, I think, and that's that's a really interesting figure for Anne to observe and then learn from.
0: It just made me think of the fact that obviously when Anne was queen, it was a wife position. It wasn't the mother position. Mm-hmm. So even though she'd seen that power wielded, it was from the viewpoint of a mother and I think that that may be the difference is that you know if you're in a mother-son relationship rather than a husband-wife relationship you're perhaps a little more in control Yeah.
1: yeah and actually I think even I think Anne would probably even say as well that her time leading up to being queen leading up to marrying Henry she probably had more influence than when she actually was married to Henry I think it was all about what you had on the man, if that's a mother-son relationship or if that's Anne waiting for Henry to marry her and Henry being enthralled by her and infatuated with her. I think women had to use those relationships, obviously different relationships, like you said. And I think Louise of Savoy is one who reminds me of a very similar relationship to Catherine de Medici later in France in the 16th century. It's that similar, the authority of the mother uh, to rule. But yeah, Anne obviously didn't have that, so she had to use the different relationship that was given to her which she did so successfully
0: and it's also from uh, those around as well it's treated differently isn't it that's the thing as well yeah. when it comes to the courtiers and the people of the council it's a different dynamic that's maybe respected a little more which yes. unfortunately for Anne, because it would have been a lot you know nice to see how she did reign over time having had this start in life so she's there she's looking at all these amazing women She's learning from them. Do you think she would have just watched and learned politics, of course, right, really? It sounds like she's successfully navigated through all of that too. Do you think that's partly her dad's kind of influence at that point? Definitely. I think
1: she is aware of and influenced by her father's diplomatic relations. He's ambassador to France on and off throughout this time, so she would have seen him in France. In these kind of political situations again we have a really annoying lack of sources for these seven years that she was in France we can sort of only really assume that she was where Claude was or where Claude's household was being a member of that household but there are several key political events I suppose culminating in the field of cloth of gold in 1521 which is this huge hugely famous diplomatic event orchestrated by the help of Thomas Berlin actually but by Cardinal Wolsey between Henry VIII and Francis I of France and it's It's supposed to be this big diplomatic alliance. It ends up the alliance triples off after just a few months because Henry's making a secret alliance with the Spanish at the same time. But this is a huge, huge moment in European history, really. And we know that the Berlin faction were mainly there. Thomas was there with his wife. We know that George was probably one of his attendants. Mary was also probably there with her new husband. We don't have a record for Anne being there, but we know that Claude and her household were there. So it's almost impossible that Anne wasn't a part of this celebration. And it's also probably where she first laid eyes on Henry and would have seen him in his utmost glory, peacocking, the two kings, peacocking, showing off, but it these kind of events, I think, are hugely also important to Anne's education, because this is an insight into the kind of pageantry of politics, I think, and the kind of theatrics that go alongside it. And it's a game, you know, it's this courtly game, and it's one that Anne plays very well up until the point that she doesn't, and that sort of leads, you know, partly to her downfall. But these are hugely important political events for her to be a part of, and that she would have been introduced to by her father and his relationship with France, and that, yeah, she would have learned a lot from, I'm sure.
0: You just made me think as well, the fact that she'd done so well. I think she'd had kind of triumph after triumph and success after success from an early age. And she obviously was doing very well in anything that she was put in front of her because she was extremely capable and intelligent. The fact that one moment in her life that she couldn't control came at the Mm -hmm. end. It's no wonder she was angry about it. And they talk about, the, you know, the Berlin temper. But I just think, well, of course, because she's frustrated about the absolute stupidity of the situation. the Needlessness after all of this amazing achievement in her young life.
1: And Mm -hmm. to believe she's got this. Exactly. Yeah, it's really sad. you think she's been set up, I think, in the most perfect way to sort of re-enter the English court and kind of take it by storm, which she does, of course. But it's cut short and that's a cruel trick of, of fate and of her husband.
0: And also, obviously, we had the fork in the road that was never taken and that with Henry Percy, you just think, well, that would have been nice, wouldn't it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, to catch Henry Percy's eye, again, the the son of a Duke, as soon as she, or almost as soon as she returns back to England, that's very impressive in itself, I think. I think that's one of her many talents.
0: I have lived over in the States for a little while. I lived in LA for five years, and I understand, you know, that moment where you're the other person from a different land. And then kind of coming back as well, in the same way, I'm completely comparing myself to Anne and her experience up but you know you come back people want to know what you've been up to and what's yeah. it like and there's this sheen that you have on you and you, you know you've lived it so you're like it's not that great but, but you know but you don't you, you kind of tell people well this happened and yes you know I did have coffee with the stars every now and then someone would walk in you know, and, and you just milk it a little bit and I just think I can imagine that's exactly what was going on they just wanted to know everything and then there she is able to then also be extremely witty and extremely fun mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah. She, she absolutely exactly played on that I think there was a certain exoticism to her having spent her sort of youth really growing up in Europe and again that was very different to her contemporaries to the other English women at court and I think that she used that very consciously to kind of carve out her own identity and to carve out her own agency through the fact that she was different and that was attractive and that was elegant and stylish and she used that very much to her advantage and very successfully to ensnare the king himself
0: yes and at this point we're talking about a fit and young henry yes I mean maybe
1: not important to remember yeah
0: well maybe not Jonathan Rhys-Meyers looking but you know (laughs) definitely a tall handsome athletic
1: man at this point yeah absolutely he was a bit of a renaissance prince in his youth definitely
0: you've mentioned obviously your work which we're bookending Anne's life with the community of women around her prior to her coming to court and then the episode that obviously everyone knows about around Henry and what happened next and then after her death obviously then you're talking about these women that rallied but it seems to me not at all surprising that there were those women around heaver and around elizabeth and mary as well and around the the boleyn family who obviously were a central part of that Kent network tell us a little bit more about what happened with the book of hours because obviously there's some conjecture about which book she had on her at the time of her death and Mm -hmm. things like that so yeah talk a bit more about that
1: yeah, so there's definitely the myth that you just said of Anne handing a book, a prayer book, over to one of her ladies on the scaffold. It really is a myth, I would emphasise. It's attached really, I think, primarily to two books, one being ours and one being girdle book at the British Library. And I think actually it's probably more likely to be associated with the British Library's book. That is one that George Wyatt wrote in 1817 was given to one of his ancestors one of the Wyatt ladies on the scaffold again there's no contemporary records to actually even suggest that Anne did hand over a book on the scaffold but it's really yeah it's, it's a beautiful image so we'll never know for sure either way But in terms of Hever's book, my theory is that she passed it at some point before her death to a woman called Elizabeth Hill. Elizabeth Hill um, was the wife of the sergeant of the king's cellar, Richard Hill. So she was at court at the same time as Anne was, and while Anne was queen, we know that there was a relationship between the Hills and Anne and Henry. They were favoured by Anne and Henry. I mean, being a sergeant of the king's cellar is a fairly lowly position. It's actually not as high as you might think, but still an important one. And we know that there are some great anecdotes. For example, Richard Hill beat Anne in a game of bowls and owed the king a substantial amount of money. So we know that there's a personal relationship between these two families. And and what I think enhances that is the fact that Elizabeth Hill who was born Elizabeth Isley, she was actually born and raised in Sundridge in Kent, which is only seven miles away from Hever. So I think it's very likely that these families were close or at least known to each other way before Anne was at court. You know, in her youth growing up around Hever, I think the Boleyns and Isleys must have been at least associated, if not fairly close. And I think the fact that Anne then seeks out this friend when she's at court in a very kind of tumultuous time for her, and I think probably a very lonely time for Anne as well, I think towards the end of her life, not knowing really who you can trust. Who better to trust than someone, you know, who shares, if nothing more, a kind of common experience of background and locality and family. And then it's Elizabeth Hill's mother, uh, Elizabeth Shirley, who was... Is- one of the first women to write in Anne's book. So we have an inscription by Elizabeth Hill's mother, also by her aunt and her uncle, her uncle's inscription, John Gage. He's the sole male author of an inscription in the book, and then also of one of her cousins of Mary West. So the book, I think, is passed to Elizabeth Hill and then is kept safe within a fairly small, close-knit network of her family, and again, who are all based in and around Kent. But what's interesting, particularly, and I think is evidence of personal relationships between these families is that the religious aspect, so the religion of the Gage family, who are the authors of two inscriptions in the book, John Gage and his wife, Philippa Gage, you know, they were very traditional Catholic leaning families. They were not associated with religious reform. And obviously we know the Blins were, and we also know this is quite a divisive issue at the time. So it's, I think, has been surprising to myself and to other scholars that I've spoken to about this that this was a family who kept Anne's book. Anne, who was sort of the figurehead of the English Reformation at this time. Safe. Um, but I think that absolutely comes down to the fact that there was a personal connection and an issue of personal loyalty over religious affiliation, which I think shows how valued a relationship there must have been between the women. And again, I think the female aspect is important here. I think perhaps it was passed predominantly between women. I think perhaps that was for a specific reason. I think maybe if their husbands had known that they were harboring Anne's book perhaps that wouldn't have been the most popular decision. Perhaps they would have thought that's not safe. But, you know, what woman read and what woman got up to was of no real interest to men. So I think if it's being kept by them for Anne under the radar, that's kind of their way of honouring her memory.
0: With the Book of Hours, its content obviously is religious, and I've only learned this recently, through Anne's story. It wasn't an overnight change in religious belief. What it was was a gradual changing and taking away of certain aspects of the Catholic faith to recreate this new faith. Obviously, there were, in other parts of the world, radical changes happening, but it took a while for that to come into play in England so even when the Reformation happened not everything changed overnight and they kept some aspects of the Catholic faith in there which makes sense in the book of hours what is the content I wanted to know that but then also at the same time it speaks to obviously what you were saying about them being Catholic is that when it boiled down to it and that's really interesting isn't it no absolutely I think yeah two
1: really important points I think the, in terms of the religious development of England at this time, it's very complex and it's very slow. Like you said, it's very gradual. And I think even to us today, I think Anne would look like a traditional Catholic. The divides were not that severe and it was gradual. For example, the things we know, obviously that Anne was engaged with kind of evangelical religious reformist ideas but I mean one of those mainly being was her promotion of the vernacular so having prayers written in the common language so in English not in Latin and making religion more accessible to the common people in that way what's interesting about this book of hours is that there are English prayers in it which speaks to Anne's promotion of that there are also Latin prayers in it you know books of hours are traditionally Catholic books that's the sort of interesting thing so it wasn't the content of the book itself I think that would have been controversial for Catholics to be around you know a catholic book but it's more the fact that it was anne's engagement with that book and herself as this kind of dangerous figure and what's interesting personally i think about the book itself is that the english prayers in the book have clearly been read a lot more than the Latin prayers, than, than the other prayers. And I think that absolutely speaks to Anne's religious persuasions, and perhaps also just the literacy of the woman who owned the book after Anne. Being literate was one thing, being fluent in Latin was a completely other thing. So I think, yes, it speaks to, to those kinds of, of educational literacy levels of the woman who read the book after Anne. But yeah, ownership of the book is a dangerous thing rather than the content itself. They more faded then. Yeah, so there's all sorts of amazing ways to see kind of how the books have been engaged with whether that's people rubbing the text often they rubbed the text as they read worship was a very tactile thing they've kissed images and there's been erosion on images in the books um, from kissing or rubbing yeah all sorts of things like that any kind of signs more grime from people's fingertips (laughs) pages folded things like that it's really quite insightful if anyone wants to go and see it you have to go and see it at heaver (laughs)
0: <laughs> the other thing that came to mind when you were talking about Anne and Look is that Elizabeth's way of being very pragmatic with religious mm-hmm. reform and that pragmatism she got from her mother I think it sounds like
1: Absolutely, yes, yeah, it's, it's the middle way, via Media, that's what um, Elizabeth said So I think that yes, yeah, she witnessed so much, obviously religious turmoil in her lifetime, she was determined to play the diplomat
0: we have now come to her legacy obviously talking about her legacy in a very tangible way when she passed that book over then and obviously this is conjecture but you know you're the person that's been doing the Mm -hmm. research you're allowed to say what do you think she had in mind at that point do you think it was about her memory or was it something valuable that she passed to someone she cared about what do you think it was yeah it's really interesting and obviously
1: it's also very related to her inscription in the book where she literally says remember me when you pray," which is not an unusual sentiment to have expressed in a book of ours at this time there are lots of examples of pleas for remembrance in books that were then passed on to someone you know think of me when you say this prayer or things like that but what's interesting and what I love about Anne's is first she's written it in a rhyming couplet so she's showing off a little bit her little wit and second she's not asking for remembrance you know she's not making a plea this is the imperative she's saying remember me This is a demand, and I think that that really speaks a lot to what Anne wanted her memory to be. I think she was very much aware of the kind of controversial figure that she was at the time, and remains today, really. And this was a demand, yeah, for people, I think, whoever she passed the book to, the inscription is not dedicated to anyone in particular but she would have been aware that people would read it probably not as many people as now are aware of it but she would have been aware of an audience and the fact that she's demanding from an audience that you remember me i think speaks a lot to how she was aware of maybe the precariousness of her position as well and how she was determined to not fade into history or be erased from history as henry tried to do
0: and she was aware that it was happening in her lifetime and that's the thing so she was carving avenues or ways that that could maybe over time or even just with the people that she knew remember me mm-hmm. you know just to just keep exactly. it alive yeah and also the language of her scaffold speech speaks to that as well doesn't yes. it and that's what's so heartbreaking i think about that is that even at that point she's meeting her fate in an awful way but she's also understanding that her memory at being attacked that's something that bothers her and something that she expresses in that moment and i think that's really heartbreaking really poignant yeah
1: very very poignant and, and like to say a scaffold speech is really interesting to read she asks the crowd she asks the world to meddle in her cause. She asks them to judge her the best. You know, she offers herself to the world for their judgment. And I think that was with an eye to the future, you know, to the future generations who would look back on her and read about her. That was an acknowledgement of her place in English history. And she must have been aware of that, literally her death comes only a few years after the break with Rome which is one of the most historic religious events that England has gone through and she knows she's at the kind of heart of this um, and she knows that she will be talked about not just now but in years to come and the fact that she asks yeah the world to judge her the best I think is really really moving and I think you know 500 years later we're still trying to do that and also she's conscious that
0: she's got a three-year-old daughter who needs exactly. to know yeah really heartbreaking so that's what's interesting is that I mean who knows, but she kind of fathomed that it would take this long to really start to, to get maybe into who she was, her background, her childhood and things that did influence the woman as a whole rather than this two-dimensional character that she's been used as it's a brilliant story and it makes great tv and film it's taken this long hasn't it really i think anyone else has tried to do that over the years apart from obviously the people that knew her and kept that book of hours do you think on the public stages you think it's always been that people have used and as whatever it was that they were trying to put out into the world has anyone really done this prior to present day
1: i think there's a big difference that you alluded to in private memory and public memory I think that privately Anne as this book is evidence of is treasured by the people who had connections to her after her execution she fades dramatically from public memory but then obviously that's revived in her daughter's reign so obviously when Elizabeth comes to the throne she has this public revival of memory and of legacy and and pictures are everywhere again her image, her name, obviously Elizabeth can't proclaim her love for her mother perhaps as much as she would like to and because of questions of her own legitimacy but we know that Elizabeth holds her very close and um, the checkers Ring is one of my favourite examples, yeah. a beautiful double portrait of Anne and Elizabeth inside but then again after Elizabeth's reign I think Anne is the victim of propaganda, she's the victim of Catholic propaganda who saw her as this kind of reformist concubine, reformist whore, and you know she's kind of caste type as that I think that really is the image that sticks for the next few centuries in the Victorian era we see a kind of revival of interest in Anne they sort of romanticize her story and the tragedy of her story I think that they're really interested in but again it's very much based on Anne as a love story or Anne as a tragedy it's not Anne as this complex educated multifaceted woman and I really honestly think yeah it's only in the last sort of 30, 40 years that she's really starting to be seen in a more well rounded way. And I think even in the last 10 years, there's so much about Anne at the moment. She really is having this renaissance, which is so brilliant to see. And I think so many scholars are getting on board with that, but also just fans of history. And I think there really is a kind of popular revival of her memory, which we're living in at the moment, which is much needed and it does seem to be taking a lot more into account than just this kind of cast-type character that she's sort of been forced to play for centuries.
0: Even the past 10 years, if I pick up a history book and, and read anything that's kind of the old cliché, it just really smarts and I just think, mm-hmm. oh, and that's happened so fast and it's so interesting to see. Yeah. And these are books by well-known, renowned scholars, but you can read it and there's just a sentence and you just think, oh, it's the old way of thinking and that's it's happened cute. very quickly. So. It has, it
1: really has and, and I still will hear or read comments or, or sentences and I think it's a bit out of touch now for what we are seeing as Anne now and for the, the direction that the scholarship is headed in and also the direction her popular memory is headed in.
0: Yeah and I think history when it comes to women as well we all understand what's been happening so now it's a case of it's not just a different use of words it's just understanding that there's more to a person than maybe one idea or exactly. what someone's put in one history book at one point. It's interesting because it had I had a podcast about Anne 10 years ago and asked what do you think her legacy is today and why do you think she's important to remember today would have been perhaps a whole different answer than after all that we've discussed and all the work that's happening and that you've been doing. I think it's probably going to be a different tilt yeah. to it. So I'm going to put it to you. Why is Anne important for us to remember and, and what is her legacy now?
1: I think it's a great question. It's a huge question. I think that for Anne today, the most important facets of her legacy are realizing that she was more than the tragic romantic heroine there's way more to her story as things like our exhibition helping to hopefully show and it's i think a realization as well that for many women today in particular but also men you know anne is weirdly relatable in some aspects of her character in the fact that she is sort of a modern woman. She's almost ahead of her time, I think, in terms of, again, her education, her intellect, these kinds of facets of her character that we would enjoy seeing in a celebrity woman today. You know, she's witty, she's controversial, she is a bit risky, and she is so charming and so charismatic. Um, and I think it's all those kinds of elements of her character that are really important for us to remember today. Just to so we stop this kind of two-dimensional image of Anne as the concubine or the executed cast-off wife, you know, there was so, so much more to Anne and her story and her memory and so much is being unraveled. There's an amazing scholarship happening at the moment into Anne's life. And I think hopefully things like my research and other research can show that it's always worth a second look. Nobody is ever typecast completely forever. That's just not the case fresh eyes, fresh perspective, anyone can look at the same evidence anew or find something new and change perceptions. And I think that's such an important and brilliant thing to remember for young historians today is that it's always worth another look because we're constantly learning new things about characters we think we already know so well. And it's because of that new research that that we're seeing this rebirth of Anne in all these different multifaceted ways rather than just the character that she's been forced to play by propaganda. Well said.
0: I think the human and and when you say she's extremely relatable because i think that's why people have had empathy for her story and 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 her story has reverberated throughout time yes it's a great story in the sense of the fairy tale gone wrong and all the rest of it but it's the fact that she really was someone real that you can feel jumps out of history and like you say it would have happened were she born in any era because she just had that kind of personality and ability but what's interesting is that i think she was kind of aware as well and that's also something that you get you kind of medal of my cause is it's it's call to once for all of us to find out about her and that's what we're doing and also her place in context of everything that came before and after that's also extremely important you then get her daughter and what happened next exactly
1: I think yeah the human element like you said that is that's the nail on the head for me and that's what I try and do with my research, is bringing the human element out of the book or bringing the human element out of the story. Because it's the people. That's what we relate to today. That's what we're interested in.
0: Absolutely. It's what hooks me in every time. All right, we've got a couple of more light-hearted questions. There's been so many depictions of Anne in film, TV. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're ready for a different depiction? Do we need to move on to other women for a while? Or do you think that this part of her life could maybe be depicted in a fresh way? Yeah, it's a really interesting
1: question. I think that... If you ask your average person, they'd probably say, oh, Anne Boleyn's been done to death. We've seen so many depictions of her. But I mean, I'm probably biased, but I would always say there's room for new depictions to be shown. And I absolutely think that this part of her life, her early life, the becoming Anne, has never really been seen. Again, the story that we see on screen is the story of her relationship with Henry, and it's defined by her relationship with Henry. We've never seen, really, the story of Anne herself and her relationships to all these other people. I think the depiction of Anne, her rise, her youth, her upbringing would be really interesting. And, and also... On the other end of that spectrum, her legacy and her memory post-execution and how her memory travels down uh, through to Elizabeth's reign. So, again, I think there's always new things to explore and hopefully to see Anne as a woman outside of her relationship to Henry, I think, would be really interesting.
0: Absolutely. Do you have a favourite anecdote, either of the women around Anne or Anne herself?
1: For some reason, the first thing I thought of was Anne's animals, her pets, which I really like, again, is maybe we don't know as much about, but is another part of her character. She loved dogs so much and I love dogs so you know little connection. Ditto. (laughs) Yeah (laughs) so she had lots of little dogs she had a little dog called Pourquoi who's named uh, after the French word why and actually very sadly he ended up falling out of a window and some people speculated he'd been pushed out of a window by one of Anne's enemies at court Um, but nevertheless she was distraught after little Pourquoi was pushed out the window fell out the window and (laughs) There's a funny anecdote where she was, people were trying to offer her other pets that she could have, other animals to try and make her happier. And they offered her monkeys and she hated them. She absolutely hated monkeys. Catherine of Aragon loved monkeys and she absolutely refused to have a monkey. And then the other animal that she also hated were peacocks. She hated peacocks and pelicans, which Henry had brought over. from the Americas, and he had them in a garden outside of Anne's bedroom, and she complained bitterly about the fact that they were waking her up and disrupting her sleep very with their squawking. So I think Dog's family remained her favourite animal throughout her life. But, yes, yeah, just little things like that, I think, are uh, really interesting insights to her as a person, again. And what breed was Poquois? We're wow. not 100% sure, but he was small. Very small. Um, cute Pomeranian. by cats okay.
0: dogs so oh let's say little toy poodle because he's poor quiet, yeah. so maybe he's french oh exactly you see now you're talking my language because i have a little dog yeah. called merlin and he's a cat um, he's just my world so and what um, do you have
1: i have a little dog she's a shih tzu poodle and she's called flo so she's a little bundle of fluff uh, and she's the love of my life a
0: <laughs> or shit yeah. yeah yeah that's the one that we don't say okay that's amazing oh, i want to see pictures now okay i love that you've told me that because i heard that henrietta howard had a dog called fop and it was just a little aside that someone said when I was listening about her. And, and it stuck in my brain.
1: Well, you just imagine them in their huge gowns, just training all the gowns with these little dogs just running alongside them. Jumping on their laps on sometimes.
0: The oh, little poor Quart, But that's also going to keep me up at night worrying about who pushed him out the window. Yeah. Oh, I right. know. There's that. the mystery that we've got to solve. Who pushed poor <laughs> Just saying. Next question. If Anne or one of her women were a superhero, what would the special power be? I
1: just have to say first that I did love all of these questions. Um, They really made me think in a different way, which is really exciting. But um, if I was doing Anne as a superpower, I think that it would be her ability to completely enrapture people. Her ability to force people to listen to her every word and watch her every move. Even if they hated her, which I feel like, to be honest, they still do today. Even people who hate Anne today or don't like Anne, you know, they're still in some way, I feel like, obsessed with her. And I feel like that is a superpower. She's just got that magnetism that has gone down the centuries. Charisma, as I call it. Maybe that's her name. Charisma, yeah, exactly. A great superhero name,
0: actually. beguiling, absolutely. So she can just stun people into doing anything she wants them to do,
1: anything she wants. Love that's her.
0: power. <laughs> that is power. Did you know what's brilliant is that she did that even without a superpower? Yeah, exactly. She had that, she ability. Managed
1: that pretty well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then the top trumps question this is where we get the flip side as well. We get the lowest score and we get the highest mm. scoring category for Anne.
1: So I think her highest scoring top trump would have to be like her wit. Her intellect. I think she was so sharp-tongued and so kind of quick-witted that I think that that would be a very high score. I think she could make people tremble with her words and also make people crack up laughing with her words. And then I guess I think her lowest, this is a tricky one, but I think I would probably settle on something like playing it safe because Anne, that was what she always failed at doing. And for much of her life, it worked really well for her. But towards the end, I think her slight recklessness sometimes, her in trouble, and she didn't always have the best ear for danger. She always played with fire. She was always slightly on the edge, which, again, worked pretty well for a long time, but definitely contributed to her eventual downfall.
0: And I think that ties it up neatly with her formative years, because actually... She'd just been so used to achieving and doing good and being the A-plus student and being the person that everyone talked about in such high regard. She never failed. She maybe needed a couple of failures in her life Mm -hmm. to understand that she was fallible. Exactly. And sometimes you've got to let something slide. Especially when we're talking about being married to the King of England or this particular exactly. king of England.
1: Exactly. So it's
0: always the case, isn't it? It's the double-edged sword. it's the thing that was her brilliant asset was mm-hmm. also her Achilles heel. Yeah, and
1: having never really failed, and then suddenly to have probably the most spectacular failure of the sixteenth century in some ways, the most memorable one. Again, it's it's the story of Anne's life. It's the highs and lows. And that she couldn't
0: control. You can't control giving birth to a son. But she was, at the end of the day, that was what she was tasked with. And it must have been extremely frustrating
1: for her. Hugely. And yeah, things that were outside of her control, I think would have been very painful to her because I think she was used to being in control in somewhat, in some ways, because of her own skills and because of the skill sets she'd given herself through her opportunities and her family had given her. But yet, when that was taken away from her, that must have been so, so, so hard to watch it all unravel after such a spectacular rise. Thank
0: you, Kate. That's been so fun. Yeah, it has been
1: really fun. This is one of my favourite podcasts I've done, actually. We've really got into some good stuff.
0: Oh, that's high praise indeed. Thank you very much. And I've been so looking forward to having you here so that we could discuss some of these things. I think watch this space because there's more work to be done on this part of Anne and the work you've been doing is just so needed and it's hit some marks for me where I've connected dots. So we'll just kind of come together because of the stuff that you're working on with Owen. So thank you very much from me.
1: Thank you, thank you. We will continue to meddle in her cause
0: done and you out there do the same thing. Thank you very much, Kate.